Hello, and welcome to the 7th Stage Podcast. I'm Joey Ping, and on today's episode, 7th Stage tutor Nick Place and I discuss five logical reasoning questions from Prep Test 89. The five questions I chose will allow us to examine some foundational pillars of logical reasoning. We will get to look at a main point question first, which forms the basis of all logical reasoning. Then we'll look at conditional logic and contrast it with causal logic. Those two types of logic covers most of the questions in the logical reasoning section. And finally, we'll round off with a question about set logic. Now, if you haven't taken Prep Test 89 yet, please do not listen to this episode. I don't want to spoil the Prep Test for you so you can save it and listen to it until after you've taken PT 89. Okay, so assuming you have, let's go. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. So before we get started, we're going to discuss some LR questions. But before we get to that, I would love it if you could tell us a bit more about yourself. Where are you from? Where did you go to school? What did you study in college? Why did you want to pursue law school? Yeah, so I went to the prestigious Middle Tennessee State University, appropriately named because it's exactly in the middle of the state. Is that Nashville? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's right outside of Nashville. It's in a city called Murfreesboro. Cool. And it actually is like right in the center of the state. There's like this obelisk right around the corner from the school that marks the geographical center of the state. And so they appropriately called it Middle Tennessee State University. <laughs> Very nice. What did you study there? I graduated with philosophy. I started off as a music major and then switched to philosophy. And I graduated back in 2016. Oh, okay. And what have you been doing since? Well, I've actually been in South America for the past like five years now, which is crazy to say. I never intended wow. on spending that much time here. But yeah, I so when I graduated, my initial plan was to come down to South America and get better at Spanish so that I could practice immigration law ultimately. And I did get better at Spanish, but I also started dating somebody and then got married, which has kept me down here for quite a bit longer than I ever intended on being down here. But it's been great. I absolutely love it down here. Same time zone as North America. I mean, sometimes. <laughs> right now, like right now, Chile, which is where I am. I'm in Santiago. Right now, we're like lined up with East Coast time, but there's like two different time zone changing schedules, right? So there's like the North American daylight savings time, and then there's daylight savings time in Chile, which occur in, at different times. Oh. And so like when they're farthest apart, we're two hours ahead. And then when they're lined up, we're exactly the same as East Coast time. So it's a bit weird, but yeah. <laughs> um, and are you thinking about putting roots down in Santiago? No, we're actually, we have put in the application for her visa. So we're waiting on a response from that. That could be another six months. It could be another eight months or it could be a year. So, you know, again, I came down here wanting to get better at Spanish to practice immigration law. And now I'm actively dealing with the immigration system with my wife. So yeah. <laughs> First hand <fun>. experience. <laughs> Well, great. Uh, what what led you to study the LSAT? And I presume it's because you want to go to law school. Yeah, well, you know, it definitely was because I wanted to go to law school. Mostly, it wasn't like a definite thing from the beginning. I definitely wasn't sure if I was going to 100% go to law school. And a lot of it was contingent upon whether or not I got a good score on the LSAT and could, you know, then get a good amount of scholarship money from some school. I definitely wasn't shooting for Harvard or Yale or anything like that. I just wanted a good education and I didn't want to have to pay <laughs> $150,000 a year for it. So I started studying the LSAT kind of with that perspective that like, if I get a good enough score on the LSAT, then I'll go to law school. And if I don't get a good enough score on the LSAT, then not a big deal. I'll kind of figure something else 
out because I, you know, am very debt averse. It's one of the reasons why I went to Middle Tennessee State University instead of like some other school. I did end up getting a very good education. I'm very happy with the education that I got there, but I was, it's also very affordable. And so, you know, <laughs> that's kind of the ultimate reason why I chose there instead of going to some other school out of state. But I had a similar mindset going to the LSAT where I wanted to get a really good score so that I could get a good education, but maybe not like a Harvard level education and, and try to get a good amount of scholarship money. And so I took my first LSAT. I got a 161 on my diagnostic and which was, you know, it's a good score. It's a good first diagnostic score. I was a little disappointed again because like so much of it was centered around like, well, if I don't get a good score on this, then I'm not going to get enough scholarship money and maybe I won't get into a good school and all this stuff. But most of that, to be honest, was just because I completely bombed the logic game section. Logic games was incredibly difficult <laughs> for me to get better at, right? But I, you know, like I, my my initial score, I think I got like a minus three on reading comprehension. I honestly have no idea what I got on logical reasoning, but logic games, I barely made it through two games and I got a lot of those wrong too. So, <laughs> so most of the initial part of me studying for the LSAT was going through logic games initially. And then I kind of went back and forth between logical reasoning and reading comprehension and then just slowly chipped away at it and made my way up to a one Nice. That's where you found 7Sage with studying for the logic games. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of like meandered around through a bunch of different books. Yeah. I started off, I think, with the one that I feel like everybody starts off with just because you Google it and you get, what is it, the LSAT trainer. And I didn't get a lot out of that, especially in terms of logic games. And then I went to Blueprint, which I honestly found really helpful. I thought the Blueprint book was really good. But still after that, I was I was hovering it around like a minus five or a minus four consistently. And then, yeah, that's when I found Seven Sage and started watching those videos. And then that put me over the hump. <laughs> nice. And now you tutor for us. Now I tutor. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How has your perspective changed now that you're a tutor and not a student? Like, do you find like it's a lot of the same difficulties that you encountered with your clients or is it stuff that like you never would have thought would trip people up? No, I mean, a lot of it is is stuff that I consistently see the same question types that people struggle with over the course of the majority of the clients that I've worked with that I also struggled with when I was studying for the LSAT. And so it's very much just a process of just like bringing people along behind me with the things that I had learned while I was going through that process myself. You know, I've also been a teacher for about five years apart from tutoring the LSAT. So I'm very accustomed to bringing people along with a certain type of curriculum and a certain type of, I guess, with teaching people things in general. And it's been a really good experience. So I, I wouldn't say necessarily that my perspective has changed on what I think that people are capable of. And in fact, I think that it's more affirmed to my position that the LSAT is incredibly learnable because it really isn't intelligence test. It's more of a test of a specific skill set. And so if we can teach that specific skill set and get people to understand that, then they can score a lot better on the LSAT. Yeah. And hopefully that's what we're going to try to do today with the five LR questions that we've lined up to try to showcase just what these skill sets are and how we approach them, how we try to teach them, how we think through the hurdles that the test writer set up, and ultimately to kind of show how repetitive a lot of this stuff is. That once you learn some foundational concepts, you can play around with those concepts and transform them and derive new questions out of them, which is really how the logical reasoning section works. The, the test writers start with some core modes of reasoning, and they just create substantively, you know, arguments. One argument could be about astronomy, another argument could be about psychology, but you know, if the core reasoning is causal, there are going to be a lot of similarities. So that's what we're going to do. Yeah. And I think the ones that you've chosen for today are also full of like very instructable 
teachable moments of stuff that we see across the whole test. Yeah, hopefully the listeners will agree. But we're looking at prep test 89, section two, and we just, we picked five LR questions from section two from 89. And caveat, if you haven't done section two from prep test 89, just don't spoil this. It's a very recent prep test. So it's very good as a way to gauge your current performance. So you probably just want to save this podcast for, you know, after you've done the section yourself. All right, so let's dive right in. The first question is question six, and this is a main conclusion question. So I'm going to read the stimulus. It says, Saturn's moon, Enceladus, has a rocky core and an icy surface. Between these two layers, there must be a lake of liquid water. The Cassini space probe was used to measure the density of matter composing Enceladus. These measurements revealed something denser than ice between the core and surface of Enceladus, and that could only be liquid water. All right, so that's the entire stimulus. We're in a main conclusion, main point, main conclusion question. So we know we just read an argument. How do you react? How do you approach something like this? Yeah, well, for me, the first thing is to struggle with how to pronounce Enceladus. Did you know how to pronounce that or did you have to look it up? Definitely looked it up. Yeah, me too. (laughs) But beyond that, the main thing that I'm looking for is just sort of like with these main conclusion questions, especially, and this is something that I bring over a lot from reading comprehension too, but it's just asking if I'm looking for the main conclusion, I'm basically asking why questions. Like if they're giving me a set of examples or they're giving me a series of premises that serve as evidence to something, I'm just asking myself, well, why are they telling me this specific thing here? And also, you know, if I get to something that feels like a conclusion that feels like a statement outright, I can ask why they're saying that statement, like why is this true, and then then read the rest of the premises as a sort of answer to that question. Yeah, that's great. I mean, this type of question, main point and conclusion, is the first type of question that we teach in the curriculum because it is absolutely the core foundation of all of logical reasoning. You have to be able to tease out, out of a set of statements, the support relationship between them. Conclusions are claims that get support. They're not just like, you take a claim, you wonder, why is it true? It's not just stipulated, like asserted to be true. No, that's not how conclusions work. Conclusions are true because something else is true. And we think that something else being true makes it more likely that this other thing is true. And so that's the support flowing to this other thing, which is what we call a conclusion. So everything you just said about, oh, asking why questions, you know, looking for evidence, those are just techniques for trying to tease out out of all these claims, which one is the claim that the author of the passage wants to persuade us of, right? And that's the claim that the author will give supporting premises, evidence, whatever for. So for this one, did anything jump out at you or were you, I don't know, I mean, I feel like one hurdle is just the kind of science-y, you know, astronomy talk that uh, that tend to lose people. Yeah, no, other than the initial hurdle, again, of like, how do I read this even in my brain, Enceladus, it seemed like once I got to the second sentence that this was probably going to be the conclusion. And a lot of times, you know, they, with the LSAT, they'll try to trick you by giving you some other maybe like sub-conclusion or some other statement of fact at the end of it to make you think that that's a conclusion. But if they're saying something like there must be a lake of liquid water, that immediately just begs the question, well, like, why must there be a lake of liquid water? And then they proceed to tell me why there must be a lake of liquid water, which leads me to think that that is definitely the conclusion. Yeah, right. The first claim, just there's no support given for it. It's just Saturn's moon is, but like, try your best not to pronounce proper nouns when you're actually doing the test, right? You just say Saturn's moon E, 
right? Because it's just a waste of time. Like, goodness, who cares? Saturn's moon E has a uh, rocky core and an icy surface. And you could say, well, hold on a second. I don't believe you, you know? Well, why? Support that claim for me. The author doesn't, right? The author doesn't. So that's how you know it's not a conclusory claim. It is just a asserted claim, right? So we call those premises. But then you, you read the next claim. Between these two layers, the rocky core and the icy surface, there must be a lake of liquid water. Again, you're like, hmm, Why? You know, like, why should I believe that there must see? And now it's different because now the author does try to support it. The next two sentences tells you all that there's this Cassini space probe used to measure density. They found something a little denser than ice between the two layers. And that thing that's denser than ice could only be water. Well, okay, so that's the reasoning that leads the author to claim that there must be a lake of liquid water. So that's, that's how we know it's a conclusion. Once you identify the conclusion, what is your strategy? Well, it's to basically just look for some kind of paraphrased version of that in the answer choices. Right. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think at this point, for main point questions, once you identify the conclusion, it's pretty straightforward. You just, you go into hunt mode, right? You, you kind of just try to identify the paraphrasing of it. We're not going to go through all the answers, but let's just look at B as in boy and E as in elephant. Those are the two common answers. So B says, there must be a lake of liquid water between the rocky core and the icy surface in Salus. So <laughs> there it is, right? That's paraphrasing. It's verbatim. But what about E? Anything denser than ice between the core and the surface of Enceladus would have to be liquid water. Yeah. And this is an interesting one. I mean, I can see how that would be an attractive answer choice, or at least one that sort of like trips people up the first time that they read it. And it gets to this interesting connection between something and anything, right? Because in this last sentence, right, where it says these measurements revealed something denser than ice and that could only be liquid water. We also don't really know why that could only be liquid water. If we take E to be true, then it definitely gives us a reason why that could only be liquid water. It's not actually telling us the conclusion. It's strengthening the sort of validity of a claim. It's giving us more information about that claim. But it's definitely not the conclusion of the argument. Very good. I like how you said that. I think the way E, not only how you said it, but just the way that you engage with wrong answers, I think too often we don't give wrong answers enough credit. They're wrong, but maybe they have their own relationship to the stimulus. It's just that the relationship that they have to the stimulus isn't the relationship that the question stem sought. Like here, if we swapped out the question stem, let's say this were a strengthening question or a sufficient assumption question, then I think E would be a much better answer choice. E, if it were true, if it's true that anything denser than ice between the core and surface of Enceladus would have to be liquid water, then the original reasoning in the argument becomes much more improved. So that's the relationship that E has to the stimulus. But unfortunately, we're not in a strengthening question. We're just in a question where we're asked to identify the main point. That's really the reason why it's not right. Yeah. And that's another thing that I see all the time, both with tutoring and then like with my clients, and then also something that I notice about myself all the time is that a lot of times when I would get an answer incorrect, it would be because I'm not focusing enough on what my task is. So if I'm focused, if I'm really hyper-focused on this idea that this is an overall conclusion question, then I could think deeply about E and say like, oh no, that's not the answer. But if I'm like, oh, E seems decent and then B also seems decent and I'm just like focused on the way that those two things relate to the argument without thinking enough about what the question stem is, then I have maybe a 50-50 chance of getting that wrong. But if I remind myself that, oh, this is a main conclusion question, this actually isn't referencing the main conclusion in the argument, then B jumps out to me as the obvious choice. Great. Fantastic. Let's move on to the next question. So the next question we're going to look at is question eight. And this question is a flaw 
slash descriptive weakening question. Right, so the reasoning in the argument is flawed in that the argument something does something. Right, so again, I'll read the stimulus and Nick, I'll get your reactions on it. Stimulus says, if a garden does not receive plenty of water and sunlight and is not planted in rich soil, then it will not be productive. Patricia has located her garden in an area that is ideal for receiving water and sunlight and has made sure the soil is rich by adding fertilizer and compost. Hence, Patricia's garden will be productive. Okay. I mean, with this one, there's a lot of parts, I guess, but I think the overall structure of the argument is pretty simple. And so, I mean, we have these three things that without which this other thing wouldn't happen. And we can even kind of think about that as those three things as just being like A, and then the thing that wouldn't happen is being B. So basically without A, B wouldn't happen. And so if we have anything, any kind of structure like that, that's obviously going to lead to a necessary condition or a necessary, yeah, a necessary condition, right? Because if I have something that without which I would cease to exist, <laughs> that is something that I need. So without water, no more Nick. That doesn't mean, on the other hand, that with water, Nick continues to exist. There's a lot of other things that I need to exist. And so when I read this one, I see this without A, B, and C, then D will not happen. I automatically recognize that those three things are necessary conditions. Those three things are not receiving plenty of water and sunlight. Well, actually not receiving plenty of water, not receiving plenty of sunlight, and then not being planted in rich soil. Those three conditions aren't met then it will not be productive. So basically the idea is that in order for it to be productive, those three things have to happen. Right. This is the transformation, the logical transformation that Nick just performed quite intuitively is using the jargon of logic in general, but certainly else that. It, it's called the contrapositive. If I tell you that if you don't have A and you don't have B and you don't have C, then you're not going to have D. Well, then the contrapositive transformation is that in order to have D, you must have A or B or C. Yeah. And then the argument goes on to conclude that she has those things. Therefore, her garden will be productive. And this is just like a classic, you can't do this, right? This is breaking the rules. You can't do this with logic. They're confusing, necessary, and sufficient conditions. And I would say that if you get to a question like this and you even struggle just a little bit with understanding that this is confusing a necessary and sufficient condition, take the extra time in review to really, really make sure that you understand why that that's the case. Because in addition to having questions like this, at least probably once a test, I don't know, would you agree with that, JY? Oh, totally. I, I think it's at least once per test. Yeah, like at least once per test. In addition to that, there's also a ton more trap answer choices that look like that too, where they're switching around the necessary and sufficient conditions. And so just in terms of like being able to recognize erroneous patterns and arguments, this is one of the most important. So, you know, for me, when I read this one, it's just like, it's, it's instantaneous because I've practiced this so much, but you know, as soon as I read this, I'm like, oh, necessary and sufficient condition are being confused. Yeah. And then, totally you know, agree. the the answer choice that we're going to take a look at in a second just says that same thing, but in a little bit different of a way. But, you know, I don't even just like with number six that we just went over. It's like, OK, I have the idea of the conclusion. I'm just basically looking for that in the answer choices. It's the same thing here. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. 
And I think this goes back to what you said earlier in the beginning about how this is a learnable test. That general claim has an instantiation right here. This idea of confusing necessary and sufficient conditions for each other is, I call it the oldest mistake in the book, because it is. It is, if not the, I think it it really is just the most commonly tested recurring logical issue. So it cuts both ways. It's a double-edged sword. The students who are well-trained in formal logic and conditional logic, you know, have seen the incarnations of this error in its many different forms are going to slice and dice through this question in under a minute. But if you don't have the training or the practice in conditional logic, it's going to be kind of confusing. You might read this argument and be like, yeah, why wouldn't Patricia's garden be productive? I mean, it just said, right? Garden doesn't receive water, sunlight, planting rich soil is not going to be productive. Patricia has her garden, plenty of water, great sunlight, fertilizer and compost in her rich soil. See, even there, I'm just thinking like you're allowing your common sense ideas of causation right? Like you kind of get a sense that like water and sunlight and soil will cause your plants to grow well. So you're kind of, you know, you're kind of like bypassing the logic of the argument and you're just substituting in your own idea of how the world works and to reach this conclusion that, well, yeah, why wouldn't Patricia's garden be productive? So that's what I mean. It cuts both ways. Like if you're really well-trained in formal logic, conditional logic, you wouldn't even think that. You would just be like, oh, this is just a game that we're playing, a formal game that we're playing with symbols, right? And they just made a very elementary symbolic mistake. And that'll lead you right to the correct answer. Whereas, you know, if you're of that other psychological profile, you're going to find in the answer choices at least two answers that pick up on causal logic as if the argument traded on causal logic, which it didn't, right? Like B and C are there as wrong answers precisely to catch people who think that this argument operates via causal logic, but it doesn't. It's just a, it's just conditional reasoning. Yeah, exactly right. And so what B says infers a cause from a correlation Right, which again, there's no causal relationship here. All we're saying is that if one thing is going to happen, then these other things have to happen. Like, again, thinking about the water thing. If I don't have water, then I'm not going to live. But that doesn't mean that water is going to make me keep on living. It'll help, but it's not going to be the thing that makes me keep on living. These things are not going to be the things that ultimately are, you know, again, causally causing <laughs> Patricia's garden to be productive. Yeah, I mean, I think what's particularly confusing is a failure to keep distinct an analysis of the reasoning of the argument on the one hand versus a material explanation of the relationship between water, sunlight, rich soil, and plants on the other hand. Let's say you're a botanist and you're examining like water, sunlight, soil, plants, and what are the interactions. Obviously, you're going to talk about causation because like what else are you going to talk about? Of course, water causes, promotes growth, but water can also cause in the negative direction. Too much water drowns plants out. Same with sunlight. Some sunlight's good. Too much sunlight's not good. Rich soil. But that's all well and good. And it's all true that the relationships in the world that they have are causal relationships. But that's not what we're being asked to do when the question stem says the reasoning in the argument is flawed in that the argument does something. That's the distinction. That's the sharp distinction you have to make. And here we've already talked about what the reasoning is. It's just as straightforward. Oh, if you have A, then you have B. So having B means you have A? No. If you have A, you have B. Having B doesn't mean that you, you have A. You, you could have A. You, you could not have A. So that's the sufficiency necessity confusion, which is an answer choice D. Yeah, exactly right. It takes a set of 
necessary conditions as sufficient. And again, this is a paraphrase of how I originally assessed it, which is confusing a necessary condition for a sufficient one, which, you know, D means exactly that thing. Yeah, great. Okay, so let's look at the next question. And in fact, the one after that as well, both questions will allow us to examine causal logic at play, right? So we can we can contrast it with conditional logic, which is the question we just finished up, we just wrapped up. So the next question, we'll look at question 17. And the question stems as the psychiatrist's argument is most vulnerable to criticism on which one of the following grounds. So again, it's a flaw slash descriptive weakening question. The, the, the question stem is telling us something's not quite right about the reasoning. And they're asking us to pick out what is wrong with the reasoning. And out of the five answers, one of them accurately describes where the reasoning went off the Right. I think in this question, the mode of reasoning being causal is explicit. There are only two sentences here, so I'll just read it first. First sentence says, psychological stress is known to both cause negative emotions and to impair physical health. And the second sentence says, this suggests that overcoming such negative emotions when they arise could cause one's health to improve. Okay, so this is just the test writers are helping us out here by using the word cause. As we'll see in the next question, which is significantly more challenging than this one, you can talk about causal relationships without using the word cause. Right. And, and it's, it's often that's one of the biggest difficulties is to have your radar light up, have your radar go off when you encounter these verbs that aren't that are causal, but, you know, they don't say cause. But anyway, here we don't have to worry about that. So here, Nick, let's get your reaction to this argument. Yeah, well, this is a weird one, right? I mean, going back to this idea of pattern recognition, it like kind of makes me think about this typical pattern again that we see all the time in the LSAT, which is like we have two things that exist in the world together. Typically, this is like a correlation flaw, right, where you have two things that are correlated and then one thing causes the other. And it's like, well, how do you know that one thing causes the other? But in this thing, in this case, we have two things that exist to the world in the world together that are directly caused by this other thing. Normally with like these correlation, and not that this is a correlation flaw even necessarily, but normally with correlation flaws, it's like one of the considerations, like if we have two things that exist in the world together that are correlated, one of the flaws that could be the case is that the author is not considering that some other thing is not causing both of those. But in this case, they actually tell us that right from the outset. They're like, yeah, well, this, <laughs> this thing causes these other two things. Psychological stress causes both negative emotions and it impairs physical health. But then they make this weird jump to suggest that one of those two things is then causally affecting the other somehow, which just doesn't make any sense, right? Totally, totally weird because, well, here, maybe maybe I can edit, I'll edit this stimulus so that it becomes more like what we might expect to see. So let's say that the psychiatrist told us the following. People who have negative emotions, who have a lot of negative emotions, tend to also exhibit impaired physical health. Those two things kind of show up together in the same person. Like you're, you're sad a lot, you're low energy. You also happen to have, get sick more often, have less effective immune system. So those two things go hand in hand. Now, if you saw that phenomenon out in the world, you might think, hey, maybe those two things, maybe one of them causes the other thing. So then you might conclude this suggests that overcoming such negative emotions when they arise could cause one's health to improve. You might think to yourself, oh, I know what the explanation for this phenomenon is. It's people who are kind of sad and depressed and kind of mopey. That's what's causing you to get sick more often. So if you can somehow make yourself happier, that would improve your health. 
that would be the version that we we kind of expect to see because that's a very commonly recurring mode of fallacious reasoning in logical reasoning. <laughs> and the twist here is that the author already told us that the first two things, negative emotion and impaired physical health, has a common cause. It's psychological stress. Psychological stress is the thing that causes those two things. Which you might think, wait, but then why would you conclude that those two effects have a causal relationship with each other? Because you just told me those two effects have a common cause of psychological stress. So that's where they throw us for a loop, I think. But anyhow, it's abstracted away from this particular question. Think about the mode of reasoning like this. The premise tells you A causes B and A causes C. Here, A is psychological stress, causes negative emotions, and it causes impaired physical health. And then they conclude, oh, therefore B causes C. B has a causal effect on C. That's just weird. And it's also a fallacious mode of reasoning that there is no support for that conclusion at all. So if you identify that, I think going through the answer choices, which one would jump out? Yeah, B definitely fulfills those conditions that we're looking for, right? Because it says it presumes merely on the basis that two conditions have a common cause, like these two do, which is psychological stress, merely on the basis that two conditions have a common cause that one of those two conditions can causally influence the other, which is exactly what it is that we just talked about. Yeah, that's right. I think the other attractive answer is E, which says it takes for granted that removing a condition that causally contributes to another condition suffices to eliminate the latter condition. I feel like E is attractive. It's like kind of abstract and it, and it sounds smart. <laughs> you know what I mean? But um, ultimately, if you take the time to scrutinize what E is actually saying, you'll find that it's, it's actually talking nonsense. Like it doesn't even map onto the argument. E's claim is that what's wrong with the reasoning is that it's taking for granted that if you remove a condition that causally contributes to another condition. Now, what is that first condition that causally contributes to another condition? The only thing in our argument that we have is psychological stress. The original A, A causes. That's the first condition. Okay, so it's assuming that if you remove psychological stress, that's sufficient to eliminate negative emotion or poor physical health. That's what E is claiming, but that's just not true. The argument doesn't do that in any way. And I think C is also kind of interesting. <laughs> Nick, would you mind just reading C? Yeah, so C says it confuses two causes that together are necessary to bring about an effect with causes that are sufficient for that effect. Yeah, so that's definitely a mouthful, I think. And with C, I think, as well, it gets back to this idea of like what are the relationships between if you're reading the argument it's like what are the relationships between the two things that are being caused which are negative emotions and impaired physical health which is the thing that's causing those two things to happen and here it says two causes that together are necessary to bring about an effect with causes that are sufficient for that effect this is not confusing necessary and sufficient conditions that's not what we're doing in number 17 which again is why <laughs> recognizing so that pattern is right? so important yeah because again we get these answers that throw these out there and you're just like you, you have to have that instinct so trained that you're just like, uh, no, that's not it. Totally. We said it wasn't just, in, in the previous question we discussed, we said it wasn't just for the purpose of getting a question like that right. It's also to help you slash your way through wrong answers and other questions. You know, it's like you're really well trained in recognizing cats. Cats come in different flavors, different shapes, sizes, whatever. But if you are well trained in recognizing cats, I can put different varieties of cats in front of you. Like, oh, that's a cat. That's a cat. That's a cat. That's a cat. That's not a cat. That's not a cat. There are two kinds of errors you can make. You can make an over error, you can make an under error. Over error will be if you identified a dog as a cat. And I show you a Doberman, you're like, that's a cat. Well, that's over-inclusive. Under error is if I showed you a like a Maine Coon 
like a huge cat. You're like, oh, that's not a cat. Well, that's under-inclusive. No, that is a cat. It's both. It's both. The test writers will try to get you to make both kinds of errors, right? In the previous question, it will be the under-inclusive error. Here will be the over-inclusive error. That's why it's so important to train yourself to recognize precisely what a cat looks like. <laughs> so have fun doing that. Let's, let's move on to the next question, which is also a question that trades on causal logic, even though here it's far more convoluted because, well, to begin with, they don't use the word cause, but they do count on you understanding that they're still talking about cause. So questions them is a weakening, which when following of Trumos weakens argument. So it's a pretty long argument, so I'll kind of read it and I'll, I'll summarize it as I read it, just in case you don't, if you don't have the text in front of you, it might be kind of hard to follow. But so the argument says, few if any, carbonated beverages contain calcium. So I'm thinking Sprite, Coca-Cola, soda water, whatever. Uh, they just don't have calcium. Some very popular ones, however, contain significant amounts of caffeine. Right. Coke, Pepsi contain caffeine. And consuming caffeine causes people to excrete significantly more calcium than they would otherwise. Right. So oh, I, I didn't know that. But apparently, if you consume Coca-Cola, Pepsi, coffee, stuff that contains caffeine, you just lose calcium. It causes you to kind of excrete calcium. Interestingly, teenagers who drink large amounts of carbonated beverages containing caffeine tend to suffer more broken bones than those who do not. Right here, there's a contrast between the causal relationship that we just read about caffeine consumption actually causing you to excrete calcium versus the information about teenagers who drink large amounts of Coke versus ones who don't. The ones who drink large amounts of Coke tend to suffer more broken bones. That's just a correlation. The statement is not telling you that it's because they drink Coca-Cola that they're getting their arms broken. It's just a correlation. There's one more sentence. Calcium deficiency can make bones more brittle, of course. So, and now we've arrived at the conclusion, the higher incidence of broken bones in teenagers who consume carbonated beverages with caffeine is probably due primarily to caffeine consumption. Okay, so that is a lot of information to take in, to understand, to process, and to organize into an argument structure. For me, I mean, there's a couple of steps here with interpreting an argument like this. One is trying to simplify it as much as possible, which would be something to the extent of caffeine causes people to excrete calcium. Teenagers who drink caffeine get more broken bones, and then having less calcium makes bones more brittle, which then makes teenagers break their bones. So they're basically saying that if teenagers drink more caffeine with carbonated beverages, that's causing them to have more brittle bones to get broken. The other thing that jumps out to me is that in this first sentence, no, it's the second sentence. It's just a really long second sentence. In the second sentence, it says that caffeine causes people to excrete significantly more calcium than they would otherwise, which is, to me, that's something that pops out because it's a little bit vague. And it's kind of one of those things that the LSAT maybe likes to use sometimes to make us think that something is bigger than it may be, we could be justified in thinking that it is. So if I say that it's significantly more calcium than they would otherwise, I don't know what significantly more means on the one hand. If excretion of calcium for the normal body is like, I don't even know how you measure calcium, but like one milligram or something per day, and then teenagers are excreting three milligrams per day if they drink caffeine. I don't know if that's like, it's significant in the sense that it's like three times the amount that's normally sort of excreted, but that doesn't necessarily mean either that it's sufficient to cause our bones to be brittle. So that's the first thing that pops out to me. That's a really important point, so I want to make sure people caught that. It's the difference between a relative claim and an absolute claim. In the second sentence, 
the operative word is than, T-H-A-N. It says consuming caffeine causes people to excrete significantly more calcium than they would otherwise, meaning you drink caffeine versus a version of yourself who doesn't drink caffeine. The version of you that drinks caffeine secretes more calcium, significantly more in fact, than the version of you who doesn't drink caffeine. Now, it's a separate question of whether it's a good thing or a bad thing that you excrete that much more calcium, right? And that's where you jump down, I think, one or two sentences later. They talk about calcium deficiency can make bones more brittle. See, calcium deficiency is a threshold. You reach it, you're calcium deficient, okay, then your bone is more thresh- your bone is more brittle. But that second claim, that comparative claim about you secreting significantly more caffeine, does that push you to that threshold? Like, are you excreting so much more calcium that you're calcium deficient now? That's the big question mark. That's the gap. That's what you picked up on. And I think it's super important to pick up on this. Yeah. So if we're looking for, you know, a jump here, which is typically, again, why I think these are all pretty instructive is because in this case, you know, what we always want to be doing with arguments like these is looking for a jump between one idea to another idea that's maybe a bit stronger or you're they're going too far versus what they've said already in the premises. So we have, it causes you to excrete significantly more calcium, but is that enough to cause calcium deficiency? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But the argument assumes it is because the argument presents you a causal mechanism for broken bones. And that causal causal mechanism is, oh, you're calcium deficient. Calcium deficiency causes your bones to be brittle. And then if your bones are brittle, well, then all sorts of things. You could take a fall. You could, I don't know, whatever, right? Like you're more likely to have your bones broken if your bones are more brittle. So that's the causal pathway to go from calcium deficiency to more brittle. But we're still not sure if these teenagers who drink Coca-Cola, if they're calcium deficient. So we're going to have to find an answer choice that puts its finger on the assumptions that this argument has made and states those assumptions in the opposite direction. We don't want an answer that affirms any of these assumptions because then that would strengthen the argument. This is a weakening question, so we want answers that that go against these assumptions. So what's your general approach on these weakening questions that trade on causal logic? Do you go into hunt mode? Do you just kind of process of eliminate your way down? It's a little bit of a mix of both, to be honest, because like with weakened questions, there could be a lot of answers that weaken an argument. And so it's not going to be as specific as something necessarily like with a flaw question where I was like, oh, this is confusing a necessary and sufficient condition. Hunt mode, right? Just zero in, try to find it as soon as you can. Yeah, exactly. In this case, it's like I'm engaging with the argument. I'm, I'm like looking for problems that I see with the argument. But then I want to be a little bit more open-minded with alternative reasons why this phenomenon might be happening other than what the author is saying is the reason why this phenomenon is happening. Or something that weakens the author's fundamental reasoning as to why they're saying this phenomenon is happening as a result of this. So I like to have a little bit more of an open mind with weakened questions. Great. Yeah, same, same. I just, I feel like weakening questions because it just, it brings in so so many actual relationships out in the world because weakening questions tend to live in the space of causal logic that I'm not confident that I can predict correctly where something is going. And this is in contrast to, like you said, flaw questions, which are just so repetitive or must be true questions or sufficient assumption questions where you can just kind of spot what's missing. But anyway, let's go down the answers first with A, which says teenagers who drink large quantities of carbonated beverages containing caffeine tend to drink smaller quantities of calcium-rich beverages than other teenagers do. Yeah, so that sounds pretty good, right? (laughs) Why? Well, actually, actually, before why, what's A even saying? Well, it's providing us with another reason why teenagers who drink carbonated beverages might have less calcium in some kind of way. 
And so basically what it's saying, if we're going to sort of make it a little bit easier to understand, it's basically saying that if you drink more carbonated beverages, then you're drinking less calcium-rich beverages than teenagers who don't drink that many carbonated beverages. Right. So, so two, two teenagers, one drinks a lot of Coke versus one who doesn't drink Coca-Cola. That first teenager is not drinking milk, but that second teenager is drinking milk. Mm-hmm. Which I guess would be a pretty calcium-rich beverage, right? Right. Milk. I don't think I could even tell you what another calcium-rich beverage is. <laughs> yeah. And this is a, just right off the bat, this is one that I would be like, yep, that's probably it. And then I would go through and eliminate the rest of them just to double check and make sure. But this is this is automatically one that I'm thinking, yeah, well, that provides us with an alternative explanation as to why these teenagers might have more broken bones, right? So it's still going off of this idea that maybe they do have a calcium deficiency. Again, we can't necessarily go that far, but it's like maybe they do have less calcium and that's causing their bones to break. But ultimately, like down the causal chain that the author is trying to argue here is that the reason why they don't have a lot of calcium is because of the caffeine, right? Right. Whereas in this case, it's saying the reason why they don't have a lot of calcium is because they actually don't drink as much calcium as other teenagers do. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That nails the core assumption that the author has made in the argument. Like, answer choice A kind of goes along with the causal mechanism. Oh, it is calcium deficiency that results in brittle bones, which causes broken bones. It doesn't touch that causal story. But then it does ask, wait, why do teenagers who drink Coca-Cola, why are they calcium deficient? Right? It is strong evidence that it's not because of the Coca-Cola. It's not because of the caffeine contained in Coca-Cola, which they drink, which causes them to lose calcium. Right? No. Rather, it's because when they drink Coca-Cola, they're just not drinking milk. And when you're not drinking milk, you're just not taking calcium in. And that's the cause of calcium deficiency. So that severely challenges the conclusion that they're getting their bones broken because they're drinking too much caffeine. Yeah, very good. I think this question is made significantly harder by the presence of, well, at least three out of the other four wrong answers. Starting with B, I think it's pretty attractive. Teenagers engage in the types of activities that carry a high risk of causing broken bones much more often than both older people and younger people do. Yeah. And I got to say that the first time that I read this argument, just something that popped out to me, again, because there's a lot of things when I read an argument, I'll notice things that I'll then at the, in the moment question like, is this where the flaw is going? And so I saw that teenagers who drink large amount of carbonated beverages, and I noted, I was like, oh, okay, so they're only talking about teenagers. Is that going to be a problem down the line? But it turns out that it's not because they're only comparing teenagers to other teenagers. Right. right. The ones the conclusion, who drink Coca-Cola, the ones that don't drink Coca-Cola. Yeah. The conclusion is not comparing other teenagers to like the general population, or they're also not making a conclusion about the general population based on just teenagers. They're only talking about other teenagers. And so incidentally will be a different kind of flaw. If your premises or your data set or your evidence is only one group of people, and then you try to make a conclusion about either a different group of people, or you try to overgeneralize from that premise group, that's a different kind of flaw that shows up. Yeah, I think that because people like us, we've read the LSAT a million times, that we're like constantly on the lookout for any type of flaw. And so that's, you know, that that was something that I thought, again, initially in that, as soon as I saw teenagers, I was like, oh, is that going to be the issue here? But again, it turns out it's not. And so that's why B is not, it's a, it could be an attractive answer choice if you didn't pick up on that. But comparing two groups of people that are in the same broader group is completely fine. Yeah, yeah. I do think if you are attracted to B, Here's an interesting exercise that you should do. If you picked B or you're attracted to B, see if you can tweak B a bit to make it right. Because what B is baiting is it's baiting 
an alternative hypothesis, right? You're still trying to explain the broken bones and why teenagers drink caffeine have higher incidences of broken bones. And B is like saying, well, maybe they just skateboard more or they play football more, right? Or they're just more reckless in some, because caffeine, you know, caffeine gives you energy and you just, you know, you start pulling Red Bull stunts or whatever. (laughs) <laughs> Which, you know, if we think about it that way, still caffeine could be causing more broken bones, right? Just not because of calcium. <laughs> Just, yeah. But in order for that alternative hypothesis to be the route taken to weaken the logic, B would have to say, B cannot be comparing teenagers with older people and younger people. B would have to say teenagers who drink caffeine engage in more high-risk behavior than teenagers who don't drink caffeine. A minimum, B has to say that. And even if B said that, I think, Nick, what you just said is still a pretty good retort. It's like, wait a second. But, but even if that's true, are you sure it's not the caffeine that's causing them to do the risky stuff? Which then, so ultimately, it is the caffeine after all. But anyway, as it stands on the face of it, B compares teenagers to other groups that we don't really care about. Yeah. What were some of the other sort of trap answers here? Well, C is popular. C says some teenagers have calcium deficiencies, even though they do not consume any caffeine. And then some, right, JY means literally what anytime you get on the LSAT? I mean, some is a range. It's totally ambiguous. You have to rely on context to fill in what some means. But the range starts at at least one up to as many as all. So the way that C states it, some teenagers have calcium deficiencies, is totally ambiguous. You have no idea, like, how many teenagers? Some. Just they exist. John over there that has a calcium deficiency, that doesn't really affect our argument in general, right? Yeah, it's just really very difficult for a claim like this to affect an argument because you can really, some teenagers have fill in the blank. You can probably fill that blank in with anything and it's probably going to be true because some is just such a low bar, such a low threshold, especially when you're talking about like cause, you're talking about like causation, you're talking about like health, nutrition. I mean, some people smoke a pack a day and never get lung cancer. Yeah, that's true. I'm sure that's true. Some people drive recklessly and never get into an accident. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure there's at least one person out there where that's true. But what do you do with that information? Are you going to say like, oh, therefore smoking isn't bad for you. Smoking doesn't increase your chance of getting lung cancer. Oh, therefore reckless driving doesn't increase your chance of causing an accident. No, obviously not, because that's just not how the relationship works. Yeah. And then, you know, going back to, I think, what the LSAT is really trying to test us on the most is like, can we recognize when an argument is just a bad argument, right? Of course, that's what the LSAT is trying to test us on. And we see this stuff all the time, right? In the real world, we're like, maybe someone is trying to refute some kind of scientific claim. They're like, hey, look over here at this one instance where this is not happening, which is what some means. Some means at least one. And so if we can get one instance where that's not happening, then that doesn't do anything to the overall trend that we're trying to show. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's move on to our last and final question. This one is question nine, and now we're going to move away from causal reasoning. This is going to take us back into the realm of formal reasoning. This is a question that tests your ability to reason about sets and how sets overlap and the relationship between subsets and supersets and individual members in certain sets. And the question stem here says, which one of the following is most strongly supported by the information above? Okay, so this is what we call an MSS question. MSS you know, shorthand for most strongly supported. But what MSS questions do is it's setting out a standard of proof. It is setting out a standard of proof that's softer than must be true. 
It's not saying, oh, which one of the following must be true if the information above is true. That's a harder standard to prove, a higher standard to prove. Most strongly support is softer. So you can think of it as synonymous as with a inference or a strong inference, not something like validity. Validity, that's a word that codes for must be true, logically airtight, in other words. Most strongly supported isn't there. Just like, look, the evidence is really strong. I'm not going to say 100% this, but probably this, and certainly this over all the other four answers. So that's the standard that MSS sets out. Okay, so with that, let's take a look at the stimulus. Rodents are small, gnawing mammals characterized by their chisel-like incisor teeth. Although most North American mammal species are not rodent species, most of the individual mammals in North America are rodents. That's it. Very short, but I think quite confusing. Yeah, and I think that it's confusing just because of that transition between mammal species and individual mammals. And so we have to be really good at sort of being able to visualize, I think, in some kind of sense, you know, what it means sort of to have more species versus more individual members of that species. Yeah, and there that's the distinction between sets and individual members in those sets. Yeah, and so if that, and sometimes too with stuff like this, because obviously there's a ton of mammal species and there's like probably a ton of rodents in the United States as well, or in North America as well. So sometimes it's easier to think in terms of a smaller amount of sets instead of trying to think about every different mammal type that we have in North America. And so like, let's take a smaller example of this, right? So if we say that although most American mammal species are not rodent species. So let's say that we take five species of mammal. We say that most of those are not rodent species. Well, that could just be that we have two rodent species like rats and mice, and then we have three non-rodent species like cats and dogs and bears or something. So that first premise is true now. You made this first premise true. It is true. We have most North American mammal species are not rodent species. Yeah, we got three non-rodent species compared to two rodent species. And then the second premise, we say most of the individual mammals in North America are rodents. Well, what if we had, again, we have rats and mice. So what if we had a million of those and then we only had 300,000 of the non-rodents of cats and bears and dogs in total? Well, so again, most of the species are not rodents, right? Because we have three species versus two species. Mm-hmm. But most of the individual mammals are rodents because we have a million versus 300,000. And if you think about it, it's probably true. There's probably way more mice than there are cats. Mice are a lot smaller. They reproduce a lot faster. They have bigger litters, right, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not that hard to imagine that even though we have two species of rodents, if you look with, within each species or the set, the set of mice, you look inside, how many members do you have? Probably a lot. Certainly a lot more than if you look in cats. How many cats are there? Yeah, right. And I think that's a pretty straightforward way of thinking about it. And it's a way of, I don't know, not getting too lost and thinking about too many species and making your you know mental picture of what this is saying too complicated. Right. So this is how we can make both of these premises true at the same time. So I think that's the first hurdle to overcome with this question. The hurdle is that these two premises on first blush read like they're contradictory. How can you have most North American mammal species be not rodent species, but then simultaneously have most of the individual mammals in America be rodents? How can that be true? And so there's the reconciliation. Yeah, you have fewer fewer species, fewer sets, but each set just has more members. So that's how you make it true. But that's just the first hurdle, because if you look at the answers, look at D as in dog. Yeah, so D is definitely an attractive sort of trap answer here because it could be true, but our argument doesn't lead us to think that it definitely would be true. 
Okay, so to play devil's advocate here, of the mammal species in North America, the one with the most individual members is a species of rodent. That's what he says. And I, why is that not right? I mean, I, I thought in the example we just talked about a million mice. Yeah, right. So let's change our example a little bit. Let's say that instead of having, well, let's say that we still have 300,000 non-rodent mammals and 200,000 of those are cats, which would leave like, let's say 50,000 for dogs and then 50,000 for bears. But then for rodents... Let's say that each rodent species, let's say you're right, rats and mice, have 175,000 members each. That still leaves us with more than 300,000, and it also leaves us with the most, the species with the most members as being cats. So just because this group of rodents still has more members overall doesn't mean that some other species can't have more members as a whole. So I agree that this doesn't have to be true. I think you've proven that the isn't a must be true. It's a could be true. It's also a could be false. But the standard wasn't a must be true. The standard is most strongly supported. Yeah, you're right about that. But I think that it's really easy to imagine a lot of different scenarios in which this wouldn't be the case just given our initial set of premises, right? Yeah, I think that's the key. I think a lot of students will, especially if they're attracted to D, they'll hear, you know, and they'll try to figure out why it's not right. And they'll hear some justification where, well, you can come up with a counterexample to D. But then, you know, it's a counterexample only proves that D isn't a must be true. Really, I think the reason why D isn't the right answer is because there's no reason to believe that D is true. Remember at the top of this, we talked about the, the standard set out by most strongly supported being the standard of a strong inference. Like given the information in the stimulus, we have pretty good reason to believe the correct answer choice. That doesn't apply to D. We don't have good reason to believe that. Of D is saying, look at all the mammal species in America. You got mice, you got rodents, you got this, you got that. The one with the most individual members is a species of rodent. Why? Just because, I mean, look, examine your premises again. There's no reason to believe that. Collectively, yeah, collectively, there are more rodent individuals in North America, collectively, meaning take all the different, take, take mice, hamsters, rats, whatever, have them all together. Yeah, there are more rodent individuals. But that has no tendency to show that any particular species of rodent is the most populous. There's no reason to believe that, oh, that there must be like a ton of hamsters, more hamsters than there are cats, more hamsters than there are bears, more hamsters than there are dogs, more hamsters than there are deer. Why? There's no support there. That's a harder concept to grasp, but that is the reason why D isn't the correct answer. Right. Just because there's something is true of a group doesn't mean that that has to be true of the individuals. And that goes both ways. Just because this group of mammals has fewer overall members doesn't mean that this species has to have less members than all of the other rodent types. Right. And I think it's now is a good time to contrast what D says with what B is in boy says. The correct answer says in North America, rodent species tend to have more individual members than other species of mammals have. Yeah. So in this case, it's a tend. Tend to. It's a generalization. This isn't specifically saying of any particular type of rodent species that this rodent species has more than all other mammals or anything like that. It's just saying in general, they have more individual members than other species of mammals have because collectively they have more members while having fewer groups. Yeah, again, it's it's kind of hard to, it's rather abstract. But notice that B is really ambivalent. B doesn't commit itself to saying which set has the most members. It's not, B is not saying, oh, it must be the mice that has the most members, or it must be the cats that have the most members. B is not at that level of specificity. And that's unlike D, which is at that level of specificity. All B is saying, just on average, on average, rodent species will tend to have more individual members 
than non-rodent species. That's very well supported because of the two premises that we were given. Maybe here an analogy might help. Imagine you're in a kindergarten class and you have boys and you split them to boys and girls, right? There are two girls and three boys and you're passing out lollipops. There are only two girls and there are three boys. And I tell you that girls collectively have more lollipops than boys do. You cannot be sure that, you know, any particular girl holds more lollipops than anybody else. It's possible, but it's also possible not. But what you can be pretty sure about is that, generally speaking, each girl is going to be having more lollipops than each boy, generally speaking, tends to. Because how else can it be true that fewer, there are fewer girls, there are more boys, yet girls as a group have more lollipops than boys do? How else can that be true? It, it has to be that girls tend to have more lollipops than boys do. I think that analogy might be easier to track just because you might be more familiar with the concept of boys, girls, candy, but don't get lulled into, you know, like if you understand the analogy, see if you can understand the abstract version of it because that's the really important version of it, right? Because that abstract version is what generates analogy in the first place. That abstract version is what generated this question. And so maybe try to come up with your own analogy to really test yourself. It's just, it, it might help to like cross stuff out on paper and see it and visualize it. Yeah, absolutely. And then also doing that practice of writing it down on paper and crossing stuff out and visualizing it will then help you in the future to visualize it without necessarily having to do so. Yeah, which really is the key, right? Which really is the key. I mean, like a lot of the stuff we spend so much time talking about one question. And, you know, when I, when I do videos on these, I, like I, I draw diagrams and stuff like, honestly, you don't have time for this. You have to be fast. That's really what's brutal about this test. So how do you get fast, right? You get fast by putting in this work up front so that your default modes of reasoning become the kind of modes of reasoning that the LSAT wants. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and this applies to everything that we've talked about today, right? Like these are all very teachable, examples that then apply themselves to other parts of the LSAT, like we were talking about before with necessary and sufficient conditions, with finding conclusions, with, you know, making sure that we understand causal direction and relationships in that way. Those are things that like any time that it takes you a long time to really think about and understand what exactly is happening in this argument, like that's an indication that it's a good time to stop and make sure that you really deeply understand it. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. So you can really do this yourself. This, what Nick just talked about is self-monitoring, being reflective. What's happening? Like it's a skill where you're not just engaged with a question. You're also engaged with how you're engaged with the question. And if you notice that you're not, again, to take the example of the sufficiency necessity, the earlier question we talked about, if you notice that you're not very comfortable with that, that's a signal that there is some improvements to be had in your conceptual framework of logical reasoning. So that's great. That's very valuable. You can then dive back into the core curriculum and view the lessons or do the drills. So you can kind of self-monitor and be reflective about how you're studying to pick up on that. Or you can, I think often a lot of people find it easier to have other people pick up on that for you because they're, they're observing you while you're engaged with a question. And this is where tutoring is like, you know, super helpful, but it doesn't have to be tutoring. You know, honestly, study buddies are really great for that as well. Yeah, because, you know, the other thing too is that... If I'm doing this on my own and I'm thinking about reasons why something could be the case or the reason why this answer is true versus this answer is incorrect, maybe I'm not going to be as diligent with the explanation as I would be if somebody else was listening to me doing that explanation. If I don't have somebody else to object to be like, are you sure that's right? It really helps just to bounce those ideas off of other people and like really, again, like make sure that you deeply understand this stuff. If you're trying to explain it to somebody and then it turns out your explanation is not correct, that's again a good indication that you don't deeply understand it. And that's something to work on and continue to improve on. 
Right. I think it's really easy to get frustrated over the course of studying for this test, but I'm not saying you, you should never get frustrated, but I am saying that some of that frustration can be mitigated by changing your framework, viewing these little setbacks as opportunities to re-examine your own logical framework, because it really is an opportunity. I mean, like the way you reason is something that you're going to carry in the near term into law school, obviously. In the law school, you're just going to be engaged with one argument after another. Like anytime you read an opinion, you're, it's just a big, fat exercise in logical reasoning and argument analysis and finding flaws in the reasoning. And you're just doing that over and over again, right? So in the short term, obviously, like law school, but it's something that you do for the rest of your life. When you, whatever political hot button issue that you care about, you're going to make arguments for and people who disagree with you will make arguments against. And ultimately, you know, if we're a rational society, there has to be some objective benchmark of what's going on. And that objective benchmark has to be rational argument. I mean, what else, what else would it be? Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. And it's also a great way of, of remembering that sometimes when you're studying the LSAT, you just feel like you're just learning this stuff for the sake of the LSAT, which I still feel like it's the case with logic games sometimes. <laughs> it's like, when am I ever going to use logic games again except yeah. for the LSAT? Yeah, but but they're fun. I, honestly, yeah, I do too. I'll, I ended up teaching myself some programming afterwards. I think a, a lot of that had to do with just how much I ended up liking logic games, even though I hated them at the beginning, right? But it is kind of like a... Something that really just applies to the LSAT, but everything else, it really does branch out to everything else that you think about and sort of the way that you participate in the world around you and in society as a whole. Okay, so let's wrap up here. Nick, is there anything you want listeners to kind of take away? Yeah, I would say that, again, just remember that with each of these these examples, I don't know why Jay White chose these examples, but I'm I'm assuming that he chose these examples because they're good representations of the types of stuff that you need to be good at on the LSAT. And so I think the thing that we want to take away from this is, again, that idea of, of self-monitoring, of realizing that each time you get an answer incorrect or each time you're reading an argument and you don't fully understand really what either the point of the argument is or the problem with the argument or you're having a hard time visualizing things like some in most relationships or sets and individual stuff. Like all this stuff is just, again, it's an, it's an opportunity to learn, but you have to make sure that you're learning the right way and you're taking the time to really diligently go over this stuff. Because it's, it's easy, especially like J.Y. was talking about a second ago. It's really easy to get frustrated and just be like, okay, this is the correct answer. I got seven other incorrect answers, so <laughs> I really don't want to be studying the LSAT anymore today, so I'm just going to move through this stuff. But you want to try to take lessons from each incorrect answer that you get wrong. And you want to try to take deep lessons from that and try to find ways to apply those to other things that you see across the LSAT. And that's ultimately going to help you make the connections that you need to, to be consistent, to be consistently good at the LSAT. I think for a lot of students, the whole process can seem kind of mysterious. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing and fumbling around. I don't know how to improve. But what Nick and I are here to tell you is that, yeah, there's some mystery, right? It's not like we're not going to say like we 100% know what you have to do and you'll get a 175, you just follow our... No, that's, that's not what we're saying. But generally, we've identified some causal relationships that are true that determine your ability to improve on the test. And those causal determinants are the kind of things that you saw us enact like really analyzing the grammar of a particular claim, identifying the difference between relative claims and absolute claims to find the gaps, right? Just training yourself in sufficiency necessity. It's a multifaceted causal picture. I wish I could just tell you, oh, this is one thing. This one thing is the cause and it's the only cause of your improvement on the LSAT. That's false. That's not how the world actually works. How the world actually works is that there's just like 20 things, each having a causal, positive causal contribution or negative if you don't strengthen them, each having a positive or negative causal impact on your LSAT performance, right? So 
So um, hopefully you can view what Nick and I talked about that way. So we demonstrated some of those causal components and then you can take it and practice yourself. Another thing, just on that kind of note, is another thing to point out about like how quickly we get this stuff when we read this now, it, like, it wasn't necessarily always the case. I, of course, like I liked to, given that I dabbled in music for a while in college, and then I also came down here to speak Spanish and to learn Spanish, and so I've been on that language learning journey. And I think we have another tutor here, too, that likes to compare learning the LSAT to learning a language, which is like, you know, in the beginning, you get all of these concepts that, you know, like you get a new word, or you get like a new grammatical structure or something like that that takes your brain just, it feels like a million years to process. You know what I mean? It's like people are speaking and possibly fast around you, and you feel like you can never sort of like get to that level. But it's like you have to slowly think about each of those grammatical structures. You have to sit down with flashcards and teach yourself all of these different words and stuff. And slowly but surely, your brain gets faster at processing this stuff. And so basically, like with all of these examples, these come down to, again, I think that number nine, the one about rodents and mammals is a really good one. Because I remember at the beginning of my LSAT journey, like sitting down with a piece of paper and like drawing boxes and filling in most and not most and stuff like that, right? And now I obviously, I obviously don't have to do that, and I, but I still like remember my little drawings from when I first started studying the LSAT. And now when I review, I obviously like I don't have to do all the drawing and stuff that I did before, but it was that initial and, you know, doing those drawings and sitting there with one question that gave me problems could take me 15 minutes or something like that, or I don't know, eight minutes. I've worked with people that like, I tell them if it takes you 30 minutes to understand this, let it take 30 minutes. It's okay, right? Because that process of sitting down and really again, diligently working and making sure that you understand what that means during those 30 minutes is going to translate for the rest of the time that you're with the LSAT. Yeah, no, totally, totally agree. Time put in the right way will yield results. Okay, well, Nick, this has been a lot of fun for me. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. All right, well, take care. Take care. I hope you found that helpful. If you want more in-depth analyses of these and all the other questions from PrepTest 89, We've got full explanations both in video and text form on 7 If you are enrolled, you'll have access to our core curriculum, which covers the LSAT's foundational concepts and a library of video explanations for all logical reasoning questions from prep test 17 up to the most recent prep test. That's well over 3,500 videos, and that's just for logical reasoning. You'll also have access to all reading comprehension and logic games videos for every prep test ever released. If you're looking for more one-on-one help with a tutor, get in touch with us. We've got a great tutoring team, including Nick, and we'll do a free consultation so you can get a sense of whether tutoring will be a good fit for you. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time.